Welcome to the Hearsay Storytelling Podcast. I'm Karen Stein. Hearsay is a monthly show dedicated to the art of telling stories on stage. This episode, The B-Sides, was recorded live at Inside Out Gallery in Traverse City, Michigan in April 2015. In our first story, Christy Snyder tells us that her first kiss represents one of her favorite musical memories. always just had this infatuation with music. I love music. I can't carry a tune. I can't play a lick, but I love music. I can sometimes feel like song lyrics can speak better than I could ever portray. And I'm an English teacher, so words are my business. And I will listen to a song or hear a song on the radio and it will take me right back to that moment. Um, And those those same emotions will just wash right over me. Sadness or happy, glad, sad, in love. And I just feel them all over again. One of my favorite music memories was I was about nine years old. And my father and my mother had gotten separated again for the umpteenth time. And my dad had packed his bags and was moving to Michigan. I decided to come and stay the summer with him. And that summer, while my dad was getting reacquainted living in Adrian downstate, uh, him and I stayed with my grandmother. My grandmother had was raising um, a cousin of mine who was a year younger than mine and me then and had just very severe cerebral palsy. He had a trachea, uh, fed through a tube. He was completely invalid. And my grandmother, the saint that she is, was with him all this time, 24-7. But she was also a religious woman. So on Wednesdays, she hired a nurse to come and take care of Justin while she got to go to church. Well, I was left to my own devices while Grandma was at church. And being the precocious little nine-year-old that I was, my friends probably can't even fathom me being precocious, um, I was all teeth and big brown eyes running around the neighborhood. Well, the nurse was a wonderful woman, and she had a son that was about my age. So she decided to start dragging him along so I would have someone to play with. And we did. I told him where we were going, what we were doing, when he was holding my hand, when to push me on the swings. And unbeknownst to me, the last Wednesday before I had to go back down to Florida, he had planned something special. And had told me, come here, come here. I got I to gotta show, show you something in the garage. And I thought that was weird. So we go into the garage, and these are the 80s. So one of these nice, big, metallic boom boxes is sitting on a shelf. And click, he presses play. And all of a sudden, Lisa Lisa in the cult jam. Ooh, baby, I think I love you. From head to toe. Wow. There was a first kiss. Well, I go back to Florida. He stays in Michigan. 
A few years later, I had decided I had enough living down there, and I wanted to come up here and live with my dad. Never ran into that boy again. We lived in the same town, but went to different schools. Years later, I'm 21, out with a bunch of girls, girls' night, nice little lake bar down in Brooklyn, Michigan. And a bunch of my girlfriends knew a bunch of guys. And I knew a couple of them, they knew a couple of us, and we're sitting and we're dancing and we're drinking and we're talking. And one of the guys was kind of like quiet in the corner, drinking his beer, not really saying much, you know, like the silent type. And I saw his face and I went, holy shit. And I ran over to him. Because still at 21, I was, well, less teeth, but still big eyes, precocious, outgoing, little bundle of energy. And I said, you, you're Brian Snyder. And he looked at me like I was a fucking freak. (laughs) He's like, yeah. I'm like, your mom, your mom is Pam Snyder, and she's a nurse. Yeah, I'm sure he's probably totally creeped out. Good thing I'm adorable. And then you could see it kind of like wash over his face. And he goes, oh my God, you're the first girl I ever kissed. And I was like, yeah. And so that night we were dancing and drinking and he leans over into me and he goes, so am I ever going to get that second kiss? Well, he did, of course. I was 21. (laughs) But every time I hear Lisa Lisa in the cult jam, I think of that first kiss. It wasn't my first kiss. I had actually kissed Brian Budinsky about three weeks before in an alleyway behind the St. Pete Arcade. At least Lisa Lisa was good for somebody. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) In the next story, Christopher Stephanchu tells us that a bad work situation turned into a life-changing experience. So seven years ago, I was attempting to make my way west, which is this direction in my mind right now, (laughs) which is right that way right now, west, to San Francisco. I already had purchased a plane ticket. Um, I had a place to stay, but not live permanently. And I wanted to be a street performer. Um, I had studied a bit about it and thought that possibly dressing up as a crazy clown with fangs would be really interesting on the streets of San Francisco and that, that I could somehow like f- meet somebody who was a professional makeup artist in the movies that could make me look like really freaking scary and then I would sing these heartfelt beautiful songs and make people cry on the street while looking like a killer clown so anyways I I, I really did have that in my mind and so the day after I bought the plane ticket my older brother calls me up and he lives in Provo he did live in Provo he's still in my head he's in Provo Utah but now he's in Sweden but still he still lives in Provo and with his wife and his kids. And he's very Mormon. 
and I am not, and that's okay, and I've come to terms with that. I feel really, I, I feel at peace with this now in my life. <clears throat> at the time, he asked me if I'd like to help him run this business, which was a dessert cafe um, in the historic downtown Provo, Utah, Mormon capital of the world. I think 80% of the people there still are practicing Mormons, very loving, not judging. Um, that's, not, that's not meant to be funny, seriously. <laughs> Some of my dearest friends are actually are, are Mormons, and, and um, I, I, there are certain things I miss about, about the, the honesty of, of, that, of that kind of belief system. Anyways, so I end up in, in Utah uh, not drinking coffee that often, not drinking alcohol, um, working with my brother as a, an unofficial business partner running a dessert cafe. And <clears throat> this was supposed to take just a few months because potentially my mom was going to come help occasionally if he needed help, but then once everything got situated, he realized that if I'm going to run this business, I'm going to need a lot of help around the clock, at least six days a week for months and months, and I could feel that and understand that and appreciate that. And so I decided that I would not go to San Francisco and I would help him achieve his dream, effectively putting aside my, my hopes and, and whatnot, just for, just for a few months initially. That was the idea. <clears throat> so months and months and months go by, and... I find myself in his kitchen having a conversation with him that went something like this. This is me. This is the, the first person speaking is, is me. <clears throat> this is how I sounded seven years ago. Okay, ready? This it's, it might surprise you. <clears throat> Alex, listen. I'm working six days a week right now. I'm feeling kind of burned out. I'd like to take a little bit of a step back so I can have time for my life, for my music, for reconnecting with who I believe I am. Of course, I didn't say that in that way. That, that's like kind of a rehearsed you know, way of, of, of saying it. But I was like, I need a, I need a break. Jeez, dude. You know, I'm, I'm, I need, I'm dying here. Like, like I feel like I'm suffocating myself. And so... <clears throat> and so Okay, and so he's with his friend in the kitchen, and of course I had to bring it up now in front of his friend where he has to be like tough, and he's the boss, and he's going to say to me, here's how it is, buddy. So he does that, and he says, you work as much as you do so that you can have a roof over your head. Yeah, I, I reacted in a pretty negative way, and I was kind of an asshole about it, you know, he's my brother, and I love him to death, and I, and, and I have a, this beautiful relationship with him now, but then at that small fragment of time, it was like, I, I said, fuck you, which you don't do in a Mormon household. You just don't do that in front of Mormon friends that are like, I heard that word when I was five, and, and it traumatized me, and now I'm hearing it again, and I'm reliving that traumatizing moment, and it's really shitty. 
So then my brother's kid, who happens to be there, starts saying, fuck, fuck, fuck. And I'm like, oh, no, what did I do? No, that didn't happen. No, okay, that didn't happen. <laughs> he didn't have kids yet. No kids yet. I did swear in front of my sister's kids this evening. We had a conversation about tonight, actually, and about the keeping <laughs> personal things in a, in a, in a, in a private way and, and, and not sharing it with, with everybody who might know someone who might know. Anyways. So I said that what I said, which I will never repeat again from this point forward in my life, and I said that, and I left, and I went to work. And I went to work for him, managing his employees, making sure that everything ran smoothly. And I was kind of the on-the-grounds person, you know. I was easy to get along with, and I would help train people. And I would occasionally sing, and that would make people cry. No, I'm just kidding. That wouldn't make people cry. But... I, I show up at work, and I'm, I'm really pissed off, and I'm, I'm ready to leave. I'm ready to just abandon Provo, Utah, and abandon this, this endeavor. It, it, I, had, I had been completely drained of any commitment to this place. And <clears throat> I decided that I was going to just wander off into even further west, even further west, this way. Uh, and see where the winds would take me. After making that decision, the next day, let's just hypothetically say it was the next day. It might have been the next week. I can't remember exactly. But the next day, I walked into a guitar shop where the owner built guitars. for. He ended up building guitars for like 30 years, and he was quite successful at it. And he ended up asking me if I wanted to participate in a guitar workshop where I actually get to build a guitar with my own two hands. And in that moment, I realized that my purpose had everything to do with staying in Utah and that I couldn't abandon anything and that I couldn't just run away from the things that I had to face in my life and that I would find a way to go through those things and work on my relationship with my brother. And there would be a way to to ease my way through this, and it had to do with using my own two hands and cutting and sanding and shaping and envisioning what it would be like to create an instrument that I could play music on for the rest of my life that would live longer than me. And so for the next seven months, this gentleman, Ken, his name is Ken Steika, he passed away a year and a half ago, um, this was the last workshop that he ended up teaching. Um, and he was considering never doing another one before he decided to do the one for the four of us that ended up taking this class. And the, one of the beautiful aspects of this experience is, was that my family decided to help support me in this and, and support the hours, the several hours a week that it would take and the funds that it would take uh, to actually be able to learn how to build a guitar with my own two hands. And so all of a sudden, everything turned um, in, in my favor, essentially, and in everybody's favor because of, of 
the peace that I found and the way that I was able to communicate with people at work, the way that I was able to communicate with the with, with Ken, who is helping me to rediscover who I am, who is essentially someone that thrives on being present in the moment and being able to look at what's before me and to appreciate it fully. And Ken was a beautiful man, and he was a bit of a hard man and gave me a, quite a hard time in a loving way, like a loving father would. Um, when he asked me what kind of guitar I wanted to build, I told him that it was something that I wanted to be warm and to project in a room such as this, perhaps, and that would be clear, not be extremely boomy in the bass. And he starts laughing, and I start crying, and then he just says, no, I didn't start crying. But he did start laughing, and he said, good luck with that. And I said, how about if it's just really shiny? Is that okay? Can that, can that work? And he said, yeah. He's kind of saying, he's kind of sounding like this. Let's pretend that this is how Ken talks when he talks. So, but I love him to death and, and beyond. Anyways, he said, this is, this is possible. I can, I can make it shiny. I do a very, a very intensive process when I do the glaze at the end, which I'm not going to let you do because it's a secret. And I'm going to... And what he didn't tell me was that he was going to sand through the initial coating of my guitar and it would take six months longer than everybody else's guitar, <laughs> which was awesome to me because it made me fall even deeper into the whole idea of what patience is. And while my brother was telling me, you should get your money back, and people were like, that's bullshit. And I was like, hey, when Ken's done, he's done. And if you rush him, he's going to fuck it up on purpose. Because he's that kind of guy. Because when he's ready, he's ready. And he is the most amazing guitar I've ever built in my life, or that I've ever built, is that one right there. The um, <laughs> And the only one, but the most amazing one I've ever played is the first one that he built in 1980. So I'm going to show you for the next 20 seconds this guitar that I built with my own two hands. Yeah. Oh. Wait, this isn't it. Okay, wait. No, this is, this is actually it. This is the guitar that I built. And to be perfectly honest with you, it is one of the, to me, the most beautiful sounding guitars that I've played. And it reminds me of a time in my life when I was, for a moment, losing myself and then found myself, rediscovered myself while in the presence of, of the conflict that I was decided to go directly through. And this is the result of it, and I'll be forever thankful. Thank you so much. Before Tony Barrow had chosen music, music chose him. I'm going to start out like a 12-step program. My name is Tony, and I am a musician. 
it's not even my full-time job, but that's basically how I introduce myself to anybody that I meet. But it took a lot of, while, it took a lot of time before I actually claimed this as my own identity. In fact, I can pinpoint the exact moment in time where I decided that this was, in fact, who I am. My story begins when I was five years old, plunking out the melody of The Rose by Bette Midler on the family piano. My, uh, my older sister had been taking piano lessons at that time, and I guess that, that was the inspiration for me. Um, not long after my family had moved to Michigan, uh, my, my parents met my soon-to-be piano teacher, Mrs. Murray, on the Badger, you know, the ferry that goes from Ludington to Kewanee, Wisconsin. Um, that's where my father was from. And in one of those instances of synchronicity, uh, they, and of course, the fact that my father can talk to a brick wall and, and, you know, be just totally fine with that. He can start up a conversation with just anybody and, uh, and make friends. That was kind of his talent, uh, among many others. And so, it, it, you know, as they were talking with Mrs. Murray, it came out that uh, his father had dated her mother at some point in ancient history. And we happen to live in the same town. So it's just one of those weird moments. Um, I had taken piano lessons from Mrs. Murray from the time that I was seven until I was 15 years old. Uh, and piano came somewhat naturally to me. Uh, for the most part, I enjoyed the lessons and had even grown to love Mrs. Murray. She had become kind of a um, musical mother to me. And in those, uh, in those eight years, especially as I navigated the darkest self-doubt of puberty, and piano was sort of a lifeboat to me, uh, it's, and especially in that ocean of teenage identity crisis, it was just something that, it was a touchstone. It was always there, it was reliable, it was a solitary experience, and I, I could just really throw myself into it. But it had kind of forced itself on me as, as part of my identity. And eventually I began to, uh, to reveal that to my classmates. Uh, the first time that I had actually shown that to anybody else, uh, as far as my peers were concerned, was in a fourth grade music class. Mrs. Bogner allowed me to play a totally bitchin' version of No One Ever Is to Blame by Howard Jones. <laughs> the applause that I got from my classmates was a little bit of a surprise to me. Uh, after all, I was basically a shy kid. I hadn't recognized my own value as a person yet, and uh, somehow I didn't really think of myself as their peer, but for whatever reason. But as I look back on that memory uh, of unanimous approval, it really did carry a lot of meaning to me. Puberty wasn't kind to me. Raging hormones, sexual awakening, and the resulting questions and curiosities combined with low self-esteem created this haze of depression that kind of turned me against myself. I was becoming this really strange paradox of a person with emotion swinging wildly from uh, positive and upbeat to depressed, sad, and melancholy. I don't think anybody can relate to that, right? <laughs> when I was 15 years old, Mrs. Murray had decided to stop teaching piano lessons, and I remember being pretty distraught about that. Uh, she had kind of, as I said, she had become a musical mother to me. And so... Um, and through my lessons, I had reached a certain level of accomplishment at the piano. And so my mother had sought out the best piano, that, piano teacher that she could find uh, to be Mrs. Murray's replacement. The one that she found, uh, she basically wanted me to perform in piano competitions, and that really didn't sit well with me. Uh, 
to me, it was, uh, to me pian playing piano was more about intelligent self-expression as opposed to trying to, to have this perfect rendition of a musical work. Um, so I used that as my rationale to quit playing piano. And the truth was I was really taking the easy way out, mostly because I hadn't taken ownership of my own talent. Music had chosen me, but I hadn't necessarily chosen music. It was right around this time that I had met my friend Randy. Randy had transferred to our school at the beginning of our sophomore year in high school, and uh, he was quite an interesting guy. Uh, he was the youngest child of a recovering alcoholic father and a codependent mother, and he had several issues, including a pretty severe anger management problem. And that would eventually cause the end of our friendship, but that's a different story. Uh, his family was well off, and he was known to steal money from his parents and that, to buy friends and to finance his marijuana habit. <laughs> I had re also recently discovered the wonders of marijuana, and our friendship was sparked, quite literally, through our common appreciation for pot and the fact that he was always carrying. So he was my best friend. <laughs> so, and while there were plenty of parts of Randy's personality that I really didn't care for, we did become best friends. And we had a lot of pretty positive, pleasant experiences. I mean, quite memorable. And some have been forgotten. <laughs> Marijuana eventually gave way to LSD and mushrooms and other fun stuff. Uh, but after we had graduated from high school, we decided that we were going to enroll in Grand Rapids Community College and, and share an apartment together. And the reality is that I pretended to go to college. I, it was all about the party and less about the class. In reality, it was probably about two classes that I had attended, if I remember correctly. Um, we had gotten to be friends with several students from Grand Valley State University, and we had begun to party with them. Uh, among of them were Dam Amber and Danielle. They were kind of like female versions of Randy and myself, but well, not exactly. Uh, but our twosome had really grown to become a foursome. In spring break of 1995, we were spending spring break at Danielle's parents' house in Canton, I suspect, don't quite exactly remember, but I suspect that we had decided to go there because of her drug connections, uh, because of our affinity for LSD and our lack of reliable connections on our side of the state. We went to her house. <laughs> her parents were nice. Uh, <laughs> they, they reminded me of my own parents. Um, Middle-class working folks, and they invited us into their tri-level home in the suburbs, uh, very, you know, quite warmly. Uh, at some point in time, I had asked Danielle's mom if she minded if I played the piano that was in their living room. And it, it was just kind of, I hadn't touched one in two years, and it was just kind of tantalizing to me. Um, I began, with her permission, I began to play bits and pieces of whatever songs that I could remember, and uh, eventually it kind of run out of material and began to improvise a little bit. And uh, I could see her mom in that motherly way, peek around the corner from the kitchen to the living room. What's that you're playing? I didn't really know how to respond. So I just said, you know, I'm just kind of making it up. You know, it would really be a sin if you didn't use that talent. Her words hit me like a two by four. It was like getting smacked right in the face. 
took me by surprise, and I don't exactly know why. It's not like I hadn't heard somebody tell me that I was talented before, and I just had kind of forgotten it or maybe was embarrassed by it. So to have somebody who had absolutely nothing to gain from saying so made those words more believable to me than all the other times that I had heard it from my family or friends or my piano teacher. I had never seen her before, and I haven't seen her since. If she walked past me on the street today, I wouldn't know it. Within a year of that spring break, Danielle transferred out of Grand Valley. Amber had grown apart from us. Randy and I had moved back to our respective parents' houses. And after some soul-searching, I told my mom that I wanted to study music, but I needed to take some piano lessons to brush up on my skills. Grateful that I had finally found a fucking direction for my life. <laughs> she was glad to oblige. And soon I was enrolled in Caldwell University where I learned how to play, or where I learned how to party and still make something out of my life. So I suppose if I had to sum up the whole point of this story, it would be that you never really know the impact that, the words you're can, the, that your words can have on someone's life. Mrs. Nielsen's one sentence absolutely changed the direction of my life. And the weird part is, she has absolutely no idea. Thanks. Tom Mayer tells us that working at Harmony House Record Shop was a dream job, but it brought him more than just music. Hello, uh, I'm Tom, and I live here in Traverse City. I used to have a, a record shop which I was pretty excited about. So the B-side uh, is about music, as, uh, as he said. Uh, this story about the B-side is uh, uh, sort of like the music industry side, you know, the B-side of the music industry. Uh, I was born in a family that just loved music. Uh, everybody played an instrument. I went to a lot of concerts as a young child and uh, got interested. Uh, my father used to take me to see his favorite band as a small child because I was the youngest child at home and it was easier to, to do that. Uh, that band was the Clancy Brothers and, and Tommy Makem. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of that, but it was a, a great Irish band. They wore sweaters just like this, except they were white. Fishermen, you know, Irish fisherman sweater. Uh, well, we had a big stereo in the house, and it was bigger than all my friends' stereos. It was a Zenith, if anybody had one of those in their house as a kid. This one was a huge one. It had uh, speakers for the left side of the room and a, a council with the turntable and the the, the FM radio and all that in the other box. Um, well, I, I was uh, pretty smitten by the whole uh, idea of being around the music business. Probably had something to do with being in those clubs as a child. So uh, when I was 19, I started a business and became a concert promoter. I was living in Kalamazoo. Uh, my first concert, actually, was the uh, Billy Cobb and George Duke Band. Pretty big band for a first concert. Uh, by the time I was in my 40s... Uh, I had a chance to uh, to work for a store that I uh, frequented when I was a kid, and all my friends did too, called Harmony House. Uh, they had a lot of stores in the state of Michigan, and one or two in down in Ohio. Uh, so that was a dream job for me. Uh, maybe not the, the top job I wanted for my whole life, but it was definitely a dream job because I got paid like I was living in Detroit, and they still partied uh, like businesses did 20 or 30 years before. A Christmas party really was a party. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't done cheap. In fact, it was done at the Royal Oak Music Theater, and they had real bands play that you would have heard of <laughs> for the Christmas party, so that was pretty cool. Uh, this, this is a, 
a seven inch, and it's not an old one. This one came out in the 90s, Sub Pop Records. Uh, Smashing Pumpkins, they, that was the original uh, label. Actually, the original label was Limited Potential. That's the first uh, song, uh, I Am One, was on that label in Chicago. Uh, but the A side and the B side of this seven inch is interesting because I, I looked up some some sales figures before I uh, got here, and uh, you know the A side did pretty well, but the B side I don't think it ever made it on an album. So that was something that happened to the B side songs. Some of them were so obscure they never actually got put on an album. That album over there, the uh, Stevie Wonder Inner Visions, I have the a seven inch from that, and both songs became hits, as well as just about every song on that. That album became a hit. Uh, well, uh, to the record shop. Uh, I'd arrive at work and get the day prepared. I always looked forward to it, and I could listen to music all day. I even had a rewrap machine. And so when you bought something new, I might have already listened to it. Uh, <laughs> and I was so proud that I had all these records that I could, well, CDs really. We had some vinyl, uh, but, you know, that I could uh, listen to anything I wanted to and uh and that was a lot of fun. Uh, so we had a few vinyls, and I, I went to see Empire Records the other night. That's what they called it, vinyls. I thought that was funny. I'd never heard anybody say that. Uh, vinyl records. But they, they never really stopped making them, even though they're a lot more popular now. And this last Saturday was Record Store Day. I don't know if anybody's heard of that. That's a pretty big deal. Uh, the movie uh, High Fidelity had a, a record shop that I think actually was a record shop in Chicago called Championship Vinyl. That's, that's a piece of pop culture. Uh, my wife tells me, uh, tell the story about the mixtape, and, and, and somebody already mentioned mixtape, but uh, this was on a cassette, not a, not a CD. Uh, people would come into the store, and they'd have these lists and, and things that they wanted. Sometimes it was pretty emotional. You know, it could be for a, for a funeral. Uh, so anyways, <laughs> this guy comes in. He's got a cassette. And he got it from his girlfriend. It's a new relationship, and he, he really is uh, without an idea as to what all this means. So we don't have a cassette player in the car, or in the, in the car. We don't have a cassette player in the store. Uh, all we have is CDs. And uh, so I go out to his car in front of the store, and I sit in there with him and listen to these songs and try to you know, label them with the artist and the title and all that, uh, because that's how everybody would have done it. Uh, and, you know, he was pretty pleased. And I always knew that when I helped somebody with wedding music or funeral music or, or that mixtape, that it was really appreciated. And uh, I always felt good about that. Uh, well, we were downtown, and uh, on Fridays in August, there'd be uh, a Friday night, and it was kids' night this one time. Um, some unexpected visitors arrived. Uh, there was an automotive conference actually out at the resort, and that would have been the only reason I can imagine why these people were in town. I was just setting up the soapbox. The soapbox is, uh, you know, like a 10-inch off-the-ground box you stand on, kind of like the stage. And uh, it was a free speech zone in front of our record shop on Friday night, and you could do anything. Uh, you could sing, play guitar. Uh, you could rant about something you don't like about government. And it was safe because all the other people downtown, the downtown association all that, they stayed away from the store. And uh, so it was safe to, to do that. And we had a lot of fun with that. Uh, but this one Friday night, I noticed that there were some unexpected visitors just past the card shop. And, and the first vehicle that I saw was a U.S. Army vehicle. And uh, what it was meant to be for is like a, a shop for out in the field, for in combat, so that they could repair things and make parts so that they could put the vehicle back into combat. Uh, I think of, you know, 
But the Iraq war, you know, that's probably uh, where this vehicle was intended to be used. Uh, well, the next vehicle down was just around the corner of the bank where uh, Northwest uh, Bank used to be. Uh, really frightened me because there were several things going on. There were two uh, TV monitors that were easy to see, and this was in, still in the daylight at the end of the day. The sun's actually shining on them, but the definition was great. I'd never seen a, a screen outdoors that looked so good. It, you know, everybody would want something like that. Uh, but what was showing on the screen was disturbing. It was, uh, it was in the United States. It was in one of our cities, and it showed the, the combat between people that appeared to be like Arabs, and this is before 9-11, by the way, uh, and the U.S. government. You know, the, you know, not the, the Blackwater guys, but the you know, people who actually work for the government. Uh, what was really particularly unique about this vehicle was that it had a microwave dish on it. And I researched this. This is actually something that they're still progressing on. This uh, vehicle was meant to uh, be used in American cities in desperate situations, and the microwave dish was meant to be aimed at the, the, you know, the enemy, so to speak, you know, the adversaries. And it would feel like your skin is burning if this thing hit you. Well, they actually had that vehicle at Kids' Night. And maybe you're not offended, but I was. <laughs> uh, it depends on a lot of things, whether you'd be offended or not. But, but I complained uh, to the people that were running Friday Night Live, and they just brushed me off. So I thought, wow, I just don't quite understand. Uh, where people are, you know. So I went back in the store. I started tearing apart some cardboard boxes and making pieces that would, could be used as signs and placards. And I went out, <laughs> excuse me, I went out and my sign said, uh, make bird feeders, not bombs. And we demonstrated on those people. We called friends and they came down. It was a pretty spontaneous uh, demonstration, which, uh, you know, to this day, I think, uh, you know, rivals other, a lot of other demonstrations that I've been to. Meanwhile, back by the store, uh, there's, a, there's a woman who appears to be from uh, Asian background, and she's singing, this land is my land. <laughs> so, so <laughs> I, you know, there's a lot going on. <laughs> it's, it's kids night and Friday Night Live, but there's a lot of adult situations going on. Uh, crime, crime was in my store. Obviously, people shoplift uh, uh, CDs and things like that. And sometimes it's the same shoplifter over and over. Uh, so we tell them you can't come in the store, and you know I never really took it to the point of uh, having the police arrest them. But I did consider putting up pictures of them, taking them with a Polaroid, and just you know pasting them on the wall, like don't come back. You know this is your picture; everybody knows it. Um, well, across town around that time, a desk clerk at a timeshare is, is beaten to death with a hammer here in Traverse City, and you know we don't have much uh, much violence. But what that did was caused the, the Chamber of Commerce to act, and they started a group called Crime Stoppers. And uh, I got my boss to join the chamber, and uh, I'll tell you in a second about that. Uh, uh, anyways, uh, about oh, the reason I'd be interested in something like that, I should tell you, uh, when I was a child, my best friend was murdered. And that case is unsolved. And it's through these Crime Stopper-type programs that there's any hope at all of solving some old case. Uh, and I was supposed to be with him. That's my, my fate story. That's not about tonight. Uh, anyways, I, I did want to be part of a group that would make Traverse City safer. There's not so much crime that you can't remember the last one that happened. It's not like when I lived downstate where the, the numbers are pretty, pretty big. Uh, uh, releases by Eminem, Kid Rock, The White Stripes were really sort of 
put a time stamp on this, uh, this period of time. Detroit artists doing really well. You know, follow up to people like uh, uh, the, the Frost and to uh, Stevie Wonder. Uh, but we had, we had sales of, you know, out-of-state albums, too. Lincoln Park was really popular. I don't know if you remember Lincoln Park. Lincoln Park was pretty big at that point. Well, if you could just go back to Record Store Day just this last Saturday, uh, Jack White, half of the White Stripes, is, uh, is pretty, he's a big guy right now. He's got his own record label, Third Man Records. Uh, he's doing well. It's, it speaks well for Detroit's uh, legacy, you know, their music history. Uh, one afternoon, along this uh, crime beat thing, uh, a couple of guys come in. They look really out of place. They look like they're too old to be out at the resort for some convention or something. And they seek me out. They want to tell me about an unsolved crime, and they have got a tip. And, and this type of thing did happen at the store more than once, which really kind of creeped me out because I, I wasn't advertising that I was going to help anybody. Uh, but I had them write it down on a piece of paper and you know, since then I've kind of studied all that, you know, when people write something out, you know, maybe there's something extra to be learned in that. But uh, I did try to help. Uh, back in the 80s, uh, three young children, or four young children, were killed on different days. And it's an unsolved crime. Uh, so I, I participated and I tried to help with that. Uh, about the time 9-11 actually happens, because it hadn't happened yet when the military vehicles came into town, uh, 9-11 probably did more damage to the retail trade, especially retail like a record shop, than any copying or, uh, or downloading that was going on at that time. Um, and it really took its effect. By the end of that year, the, the owner of the business, you know, we, we had about 35 stores when I started working there, he started to close them one by one. And by the end of that year, we closed. By the end of 2001, the store was done. It's too short. Uh, my friend Keith came over, and he videotaped it, and the soundtrack is all John Coltrane. And, and I've still got that memory, which you know, it's about the only pictures I really have of that. Uh, well, that's the B-side. Uh, one last thing, just to, to kick it in there. Uh, Ani DeFranco was really kind to us when we were running the record shop. It was the first time she ever appeared at Interlock, and first time she ever came north. And then I got reunited with her on this last visit when she played at the Opera House, and that just sort of tied it all together for me, even though a lot of years had passed. It was really nice talking to her. She's one of the greatest musicians uh, that has come to Traverse City. She's really a, a great person, and, and thank you. Next, Erin Bernhard considers how her interest in music has changed with each phase of her life. I'm the type of girl who has about 10,000 songs in my iTunes, and I'm still constantly looking for additions to add to my music collection. Lately, I've been mixing Nicki Minaj and Beyonce into my like standard acoustic indie rock and blue, bluegrass-filled playlists because I am committed to the idea of someday being able to rap or at least sing along with Nicki Minaj and Beyonce because they rock. <laughs> On the other end of the spectrum is my partner um, who plays drums in a pop punk band and listens to equal parts instrumental spazcore, which is his, his uh, name for like crazy experimental instrumental rock music, and hardcore metal. 
Um, I've always been a girl who's into drummers, but I, don't get me started on how happy I am to be winning at my hashtag life goals. <laughs> I found myself in a situation right now that I literally never could have dreamed possible, and I owe it all to exploring the musical offerings that are beyond my, my iTunes capabilities. I spent my early days in ballet and gymnastics classes, learning to feel the rhythms and showcase them with my body. I had ill-fated careers in both performance arts, but decidedly moved on to playing instruments like the violin and the saxophone, which are similar in their resonance and ability to help someone feel the notes. I quickly learned that my hand-ear coordination is less than stellar, but it was a blessing to help me narrow down what my next direction in music could be. I discovered my singing voice quickly after, soon after moving to northern Michigan, likely because the air up here is so well-suited to soothing the vocal cords. I sang my heart out for the five or six years um, spanning my middle and high school careers, allowing music to take me across the country and all over the world, quite literally. I achieved my crowning glory during my senior year in high school, performing in an elite small ensemble as well as holding a lead role in the department's spring musical. Without knowing how or why, though, I once again felt pulled in a different direction during the collegiate audition process, this time feeling like I had peaked in my ability to make it any further with singing. So I forwent my admittance to a vocal performance program in exchange for entering the de English department. In all those years of making music, I had spent just as much time listening to the way melodies met lyrics and, in turn, found an obsession in words to match my obsession with music. For a solid part of my childhood, we only owned two CDs to play in the boom, on the boombox in the kitchen. Uh, that meant that dinner preparation was constantly juxtaposed with James Taylor and Cat Stevens sing-alongs. <laughs> That's my mom in the middle there. <laughs> I evolved my taste in music pretty effortlessly, learning every song that played on the local country radio station, and then diving into boy bands and girl pop. From there, I found a voice for my teenage depressed self through pop punk music, or what we then called emo music. Finally, or maybe finally, I discovered chick rock, yelling along with Lannis Morissette before I even know what she was singing about. <laughs> In high school, my discography ranged from Ani DeFranco to Lil Wayne to Dashboard Confessional, with the brief musical soundtrack intermixed. As much as I swooned at the melodies and marveled over the instruments, I spent most of my time perfecting the lyrics to approximately a million songs. I'm proud to say that I can still recite Beck's Soy un Perdedor, Perdedor to this day, but I'm not breaking out in song anytime soon, unless you want to fund my tequila at sail-in next Saturday night for karaoke night. <laughs> I have spent my entire life letting life take me where it will, gaining exper experiences left and right just by being willing to try stuff out. Lo and behold, I'm now working for an event produ production company with its finger on the pulse of the music industry, bringing national acts to an untapped market. Never could I ever have imagined when I was moved to tears by Brandi Carlisle opening for Ana DeFranco in Ann Arbor six years ago that I'd ever have the pleasure of escorting them both around my amazing hometown. I can now say that I've done all that and more for this community.
In a crazy twist of fate, I find myself now sharing an office with the love of my life, who I didn't really even think would ever exist. We met when our professional paths crossed last summer, and our first date was a private viewing of an orchestral soundtrack. Soundcheck, excuse me. We just recently got back from a work excursion at South by Southwest in Austin, where we had the strange pleasure of co-producing an underground after party for the tastemakers of the hip-hop industry. The party was attended by Miley Cyrus, Adam Levine, and Funkmaster Flex. Though I may have been just a little bit out of my element scene-wise, because I think we can all agree that the hip-hop scene in Traverse City is brutally lacking, the party helped me realize that I found my dream, dream job and dream life, even though I never knew it really existed. That feeling was replicated just this past Saturday when we received tickets to the Avid Brothers show in Kalamazoo that were so exclusive that the ushers didn't know which direction to send us. We had asked if we could promote the band's upcoming performance headlining the Microbrew Music Festival in August and ended up enjoying an incredibly powerful show as VIPs. Hashtag life work perks. I've come a long way from tutus and balance beams, obviously, but my love for rhythm, melody, and lyrics has only grown over time. I've been a music enthusiast, creator, performer, promoter, and potentially soon a writer, guitar player, and dare I say, rapper. To say that music plays an integral light part in my life is the understatement of the century, but it's a truth that I've only recently started focusing on with pride and encouragement. One of my greatest joys is my ability to share the love that I have in so many forms, ranging from making mixtapes, to producing events, to telling stories, to singing very loudly on road trips. And that has led me to being almost forcefully made to uh, record a record with my boyfriend, who is unfortunately not here, but is cheering me on from home. Uh, my life is music in all its forms and functions, from headbangers and bass drops to twangers and time hops. They're all love songs to me. Thank you. In our last story of the evening, Elon Cameron ponders the lost art of the mixtape. So I was born in the early 1970s to hippie parents. My childhood was rich with adventure and flights of fancy and feasts of the senses and, of course, music. Music was played in our modest little home on a very nice phonograph, a turntable attached to a glowing green amplifier and big brown speakers with those foam fronts that squished just right if you touched them. But you're not supposed to touch those. We played cassette tapes in the car. There were crossovers, of course, but we only had the Beatles' White Album on cassette, so Back in the USSR was a car song, while Hey Jude was a house song. I didn't notice it at the time, but I was being trained to curate music to a particular surrounding, a place, a type of experience. I learned that certain songs matched certain things, and moods, and feelings. I had radio favorites as well. Bad, bad Leroy Brown by Jim Croce. Someone my mother would absolutely not allow be played in the home. But the radio had a little wiggle room in that way. Similarly, Joni Mitchell was banned from the household. 
And in fact, most female musicians were until later when my mother heard Debbie Harry, Joan Jett, and Pat Benatar. I'm sure the reasons my Elton John tapes lived in the car (laughs) were that left to my own devices, that would be all we would have ever listened to. (laughs) Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboy came out, and I'm pretty sure I nearly drove my mother to some kind of suicidal, homicidal fantasy by playing over and over again, Someone Saved My Life Tonight. I'm pretty sure that's the point at which the, rec- the rewind button in our car was deemed broken. <laughs> I loved listening to music on records, on tapes, on the radio, even at my uncle's house where he had one of those cool reel-to-reel things, played weird German marches and stuff. I loved each in a different way, and I remember thinking, why can't the radio just skip the commercials? It's such a bunch of crap, Right? Why can't I just skip to the songs that I want to hear? Especially at that moment when, like, you hear the beginning of a song and it sounds like your, like, super-duper favorite song and then you realize it's a totally different song that you don't care for nearly as much. You know the feeling. (laughs) I thought about these things at an early age. I should have gotten into computers. I started to develop my own personal musical taste. Queen... Freddie spoke to me in such a deep way. He, he had a message that reached directly to my heart that I didn't understand at the time, but I just wanted to listen to him talking to me through his music. It made me feel like I had a hold on something magical, something bigger. Music just made me feel so much. In grade school, I rigged up a setup whereby I could record songs from the clock radio onto a tape recorder using a microphone that I duct taped to the speaker. My bedroom recording studio was the birth, in my opinion, of the mixtape. I was really eclectic in my tastes even then. Devil went down to Georgia, knock on wood, 50 ways to leave your lover, she's gone. I found a low very low fidelity way of capturing my love, holding it in a plastic rectangular case and controlling it. I could hear it over and over anytime I wanted. By the age of 10, I'd perfected my strategy. I discovered that if I backrolled the wheels on the tape, that the recording would begin just a little bit sooner and the alignment was better for the previous song, I shared this with anyone who would listen. There was no one who would listen. (laughs) When combination tape radio boom boxes hit the consumer market, I thought that God had heard my pleadings. (laughs) Now I could finally record the songs off the radio all the time, whenever I wanted, at the same time. But there was this weird other thing that kind of rocked my world. I was like... So there's all this music, and we can't listen to it all the time. And uh, at the time, my mom and dad rented out the spare bedroom in our our home to college students, mostly maritime dudes, and in fact, one really cool maritime dude who maybe really liked music a lot. And um, he was like, yeah, but the best stuff isn't even on the radio. And my mind was completely blown. 
I was like, okay, so the best music that's out there isn't on the radio, and I already like what's on the radio, so what am I going to do? So I discovered all of this new music. I shared this with anyone I could talk to about music. I'd be like, do you know the songs that they don't play on the radio? So my age places me right smack dab in the middle of Generation X. To be specific, that's somewhere between 1961 and 1979 for a date of birth. If you want to talk about that, my mom's right over yonder. Um, So what's the legacy of my generation? The word, film, and lifestyle slacker? Yeah, totally. And also numerous movements in the social justice, art, and music worlds, including, but certainly not limited to, the mixtape. My long history of manipulating songs and capturing them in a shareable way primed me for the mixtape. The money that I made babysitting and having a paper route went directly to to buying cassettes. Blank tapes were a magical commodity in my mind. I felt the potential laying in the surface of that brown magnetic field where anything could happen. I played around with recording commentary, taking snippets from vintage TV shows. I was really into Gidget. (laughs) And interspersing them with songs. Looking back, I guess it wasn't so awful being woefully unpopular, because I got a lot done. (laughs) In junior high school, I saved my money and bought a dual cassette deck. I made tapes for everyone, including my mom. I made tapes for my grandmother, who she, I don't think she even had a tape player. <laughs> my estranged cousins, my, who I thought really needed to hear about Beck, because in the time of chimpanzees, I was a monkey. And I made mixes for anyone that I encountered who I thought might want to be my friend, usually resulting in being horribly chided, but I did it anyway. Though, in at least one case, someone discovered that I had slightly more interesting taste in music than they'd expected. I, I wanted to be cool. More than anything, I wanted to be popular. I would have given anything for it. But I had to be true to my form. If a tape called for something odd or out of style, it went in there. I bought ten tape bricks from the Meyer Record and Tape Department. If anyone remembers that... <laughs> It's essentially where the produce section is now, next to where the hair studio where I got my perms used to be. (laughs) I made compilations of artists I liked, and I didn't care if they were popular, so I always included Elton John. I made samplers for people who I thought maybe needed their musical horizons expanded. I, of course, knew best what everyone ought to be listening to. So here's the thing that stumps me. As a kid with like horrible self-esteem, where did that certainty come from? I mean, when everyone I knew was listening to Tiffany or Debbie Gibson, how did I know that I had good taste in music? I just did. <laughs> I linger at the record store and talk to the folks who worked there, often asking about obscure B-sides and imported live albums. Fortunately, when it came to music, I ignored feeling uncool, uncomfortable. I just became this unabashed thing that wanted to talk about a thing. 
The first time I had any significant quantity of my own cash in a big city, I spent it all at a giant record store the size of the block that I grew up on. Beastie Boys, My Life with the Thrill Kill Cult, Indigo Girls, Brian Eno, Aha, Cocteau Twins, Stephen Patrick Morrissey, The Pixies, and a couple of soundtracks. I loved soundtracks because they always had obscure weirdo tracks that you couldn't find anywhere else. I put so many 4AD record label songs on mixtapes that I really should write that label checks of gratitude in perpetuity. Over time, I established a sort of ritual. I'd gather songs that I loved, listen to them together, and wait for a story to emerge. Once I was in college, mixtapes were like a thing. People exchanged them like baseball cards. I had friends who introduced me to bands like Nirvana, Dinosaur Jr., Fugazi, Mogwai. Musical horizons were expanding in every direction. I learned of Harold Budd and Stockhausen, Daniel Johnson, sorry, Daniel Johnston. Friends in bands made tapes and handed them out at shows where cooler bands played. I started to grow in my collections of tapes and tapes and tapes, endless soundscapes from my years at the Art Institute of Chicago where I worked in the sound department, making my first original recording using contact microphones and an analog synthesizer the size of this wall. Still, I was focused on collecting the best of what popular music had to offer. Two or more times a year, I would make a mix, spring and autumn, leaning toward the moody in most things in life. My autumnal bedroom stylings were often soft, quiet, melancholic compilations, while spring was full of ebullience and playfulness. For example, XTC and Delight versus Morrissey and His Name is Alive. In... Uh, Elliot Smith's Independence Day was a song I carried around in my head for almost a full year. It wasn't until I heard it adjacent to Dolly Parton's Jolene that it made sense to me. Both so full of longing and love and desperation and in one way or another resolution and freedom. I would carry these little couplets of songs around with me for a while until another song showed up. I heard that in some way makes sense. These connections built bridges, bridges of feeling and meaning, and I loved this process. I admit I was kind of obsessed, still relatively (laughs) antisocial. I spent my days listening to music, but it was for a purpose now, the pursuit of the perfect mix. I suppose... In my lifetime, there have been three such mixes that I felt were good enough to share. So good that I mass-produced them, making five to 20 copies, which I gave to friends or perhaps a couple people I met while waiting tables. Mixtapes and mixed CDs, to a less aesthetically pleasing extent, are a place in between worlds, a place where music is shared, where discovery of theme and feeling become a part of our conscious experience. It's been ages since I toiled over such a noble pursuit. 
And in a lot of ways, I do miss it. When you put a playlist into physical form, that list comes to life. It becomes a living thing. Modern convenience of sharing music in a more digital way is extremely delightful. I can hear a song that I like, and I can send it to my friend who I haven't seen in two and a half years in Hershey, Pennsylvania, and he will listen to it within five minutes. But there's still this analog back alley way that I miss. It's okay. I still assemble my playlists with great care. And whenever I play records, I use my childhood skill set to be sure that the voyage is rich, even if confusing and off-putting. It's okay. It's good for you. Hearsay is a live storytelling show staged monthly in Traverse City, Michigan. Our podcast is produced by A.J. Scott. Thank you to Mike Kurtz and Inside Out Gallery. Find out more about Hearsay at our website, hearsaystorytelling.com. This is Karen Stein, Hearsay's founder and creative director. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 